took my cat outside this morning. We thought it was going to be 80, 85. Got outside. It was 60 and breezy, and he, he didn't want to stay outside. <laughs> but I was reading a G.I. Joe. I brought my G.I. Joe comic, <laughs> my clipboard, my pen, my frown, also <laughs> bre- breakfast, seat cushion. Uh, so I let him just sit by the door, at, nicely asking to go back inside <laughs> while I read half the comic. We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Jew. It's something you wanted if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. Hey, 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 I see the bad moon rising, I see trouble on the way, it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. Now, if you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details and previous episodes over at talkingjoe.co.uk. Today, we are continuing our look at the disavowed era of G.I. Joe with issues 34 and 35, a two-parter named Bad Moon Rising from Devil's Due, the fall of 2004. That's not to say it's the demise of 2004. It's, a, it's an American way of, of describing autumn. Uh, now, dis- <laughs> <laughs> that that's for our many listeners uh, in Macau, South Africa and Hong Kong. Uh thanks for listening. Now, joining me to discuss Bad Moon I almost said dismiss, but um it might not be far off. Uh joining me to discuss Bad Moon Rising. It's my two co-presenters. First up, Howling at the Moon. It's a real American werewolf. It's Tim Finn. Hello, listeners, and hello, Mark, and hello, Mark's puns. <laughs> it's good to talk to you, Tim. Uh, and next up it is our resident, Luna Tick. Luna, get it? It's Jay, G.I.J. Jay Cordray. Howdy, Joe fans. N.W.O. Wolfpack for life. <laughs> Tim's going, what the hell is he talking on? about? He's going to... Just going to talk um, about comic books. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and just before we get into the next one, uh, I'll just remind listeners who are listening to these Devil's Due episodes that uh, we just recently, and by we, I'm talking about the royal we, me, uh, talked to, uh, spoke to uh, Josh Eggerbean off of the Kickstarter After Action Report, uh, talking about volume two, which is the Devil's Due era. Uh, book. So if you're into all things Devil's Due, check out their Kickstarter. Did they have any kind of release date, uh, release date in mind for that? Do you know? They're running the Kickstarter uh, until uh, just after JoeCon, so towards the end of mm-hmm. June. Um, after that, it will continue to be, uh, I think, available through their website, afteractionreport.net, I think that is. Oh, okay. So within a couple of months, it's not like a Hasbro pre-order. No, no, they've um, they've got all about eighty percent plus done. So, so there's just some fine tuning and finishing cool. up. So, um, there after after it's been back, there isn't a, a huge amount of extra yeah. editorial uh, leg work to do. So, uh, they're hoping to get it out something like October, I believe. So, yeah, it won't be it won't be too long away. 
if I can just uh, correct a, a word there, uh, it is a Joe Con, but it is called Joe Fest. Thank you, Tim. Okie dokie. Let's talk Devil's Due comics. So issues 34 and 35 were created by story Brandon Jawa. Brandon, Brandon Jawa. Pencils, Tim Seeley. Backgrounds, Jason Millett. Inks, Corey Hampshire. Colours, Brett R. Smith. Letters, Dreamer Designs. Editor, Mark Powers. Graphic Design, Mark Mike Norton. Production Assistant, Sean Dove. Military Consultation, Andrew Swenson. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Issue 34... Uh, each of these only has one cover. There's no, there's no A cover, B cover. Issue uh, each of them has three covers, Tim. Really? <laughs> cover A, cover B, and cover C. Really? It's the C cover. I have <laughs> two for each of them. Oh, you know what? I'm just gonna do that again. Hold on. Let me. Hold on. Let me. Uh, hold on. We're just I'm gonna do this again. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hold on. I'm going to going to my comic shop dot com and i'm clicking on this is where i look at covers a lot of the time yeah they're definitely on um they're definitely on yojo.com but the resolution is not very good what are the uh the c covers mark uh wait 34 has variants so 34 has got cover a is hawk in a wheelchair cover b is graham's crackers exclusive which is just a red uh, cobra logo on a black background and Cover C is a second printing, uh, which is just a pan. Uh, it's got a an interior panel blown up onto to be a full page image. It's Ooh, the image that's the of, worst. That's the worst kind of cover. <laughs> it's the Agreed. cover of Cobra Commander, oh, uh, sort of looming over Baroness with lots of snakes hither and thither. Okay, now I now I see that there's a. Yeah, there's a previews exclusive for 35B, and that, and that is mentioned on the inside cover, uh, inside front cover. All right, anyway, going back a step, I'm just going to talk about uh, A cover and A cover, because uh, if it's a store variant, technically, yes, that's a variant cover, but that's not something that the general yeah, public has a good chance of getting. It's not like Devils Do made A and B for everyone. So anyway, uh, 34, main cover, is uh, it's a black and white Hawk's sitting in a wheelchair. He's in his uh, dress greens. He has an American flag draped over his lap. Dress greys. He's in his dress greens, but it's a black and white image. What I mean is he's in his dress uniform. Uh, Yes, we don't see them as green. And uh, and his hands are, his arms are are on the uh, armrests. And uh, notably, the logo covers his face. And this is a, this is a bold compositional choice Mm. uh you sometimes see this with book covers or uh movie posters this reminds me of um an early teaser poster for the film uh eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and um where the the logo covers uh the two actors like half of their faces where their eyes are this this is not a mistake this is on purpose uh and it it sort of focuses you on the uniform and the flag, and then you realize the context, which is the wheelchair. Um, I like the idea of this cover. I like the color treatment. 
I do see a repeating Photoshop brush just over the stars under um, the pouch that's under uh, Hawk's uh, bars. It's on the right side. There's sort of this like Photoshop brush that's got this sort of seemingly randomized pattern. And then it's like pasted, 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 pasted like six times in a upward diagonal swoosh kind of away from his hand. Um, but, uh, and, th and that's also happening on the, the bottom part of the flag. There's some dot patterns that are repeating that you're not supposed to be able to see. But um, it's a striking image and it says a lot. Main cover for 35. Uh, both, these, both these covers are penciled by Tim Seeley. The main cover for 35 is Wraith on the left in profile, just his head and the tip of his uh, weapon and Snake Eyes on the right looking to the left in profile with the tip of his weapon. And there's a, a, a splatter behind them. You know, that would be done in, in white paint uh, on, you know, black ink on the Bristol or on a separate piece of Bristol. And then here it's colored sort of a dull orange. And this, this is a, this is a, this is a bold idea for a cover, but I think in subtle ways, Seeley's not quite up to the drawing task of it. It gets the job done, right? And certainly this, this happens in the issue. These two characters fight and it's an exciting fight. Um, but I, I look at this drawing and I sort of think about the physical logic of it. You know, it's like, well, if we saw them full, full body, they would be like leaning in toward each other and um, like craning their necks forward and like scrunching up their arms so that the tips of their weapons show a little bit in the cover. But you'd never stand like that. You'd never hold your weapon like that. Um, I had this pet peeve. This happens with Deadpool a lot in Marvel Comics the last 20 years, and it happens a little bit with Snake Eyes in Devil's Due Comics, where um, his ma the mask over his face is sort of like tight enough that whatever he's doing with his mouth, if he's grimacing or frowning you can see that in the the contours of the mask and i find that a little unrealistic and and distracting i think i think snake eyes is best uh left a blank canvas that we project onto and if we see him with gritted teeth because the bottom half this mask is torn away in like a rob liefeld dead game cover or if we see him like frowning because Tim Seeley draws like really frowny eyebrows on Wraith and Snake Eyes in this whole issue, even though they have masks on. Um, or his 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 mouth is like it's an up it's an upside down smile. Anyway, um, I, uh, the cover's okay. Uh, <laughs> you guys want to talk about any of the uh, the store exclusive or variants? Uh, there's there's the cover B for thirty five is uh, Tim Seeley Sunder Raj. Uh, it's Snake Eyes. Uh, sort of in the foreground with sort of Rafe coming behind him, sort of block and and Snake Eyes is blocking his blow. It's okay, not not too exciting. And cover C, the second printings for both books have interior panels that have been blown up blown up. Uh, as I said, the 34 has got that uh, panel of Cobra Commander, half snake looming over Baroness. Uh, and cover C has got the the splash page of Wraith uh, decking snake eyes without the wham sound effects that was on the um yeah okay i mean 
if you want to get a second printing out of it, it makes sense to as an economy option to to use an interior page splash page, but um, uh, not necessarily the one I would seek out. The um, I have one more thing to say about uh, thirty five. Um, this this cover reminds me of speaking of movie posters, the movie poster for Demolition Man, the movie with Stallone and Wesley Snipes, and. They're a little bit different, right? In that poster, they're uh, they're not holding their weapons. They're not sort of leaning forward. They're just straight up and down. Um, this poster also, excuse me, this cover also slightly reminds me because it's the opposite of Ron Wagner's cover to Nth Man number nine. And anytime I see a comic book cover where two characters are like facing off or sort of the opposite of facing off like back to back you know it can be like that like 80s trope of like you know one person's got their arms folded and the other person's like leaning back and they're like sort of flirty or they're sort of teaming up or they sort of don't like each other and and there's i find ron wagner's cover to nth man nine and again this isn't a fair comparison because it's it's it is the opposite uh, and there is actually it's a lot more information but I feel like you could do a little bit more with just Wraith's head and just Snake Eyes's head, right? You can move them up a little bit. You could pull back a little bit. You could show a shoulder. You could uh, something, right? And the, the Demolition Man poster is is quite effective, although, you know, I'm like a little distracted because I'm certain these two guys were photographed separately. And that's, mm. like you know, like not Photoshop, but a Photoshop job to like comp them in together. There's also there's also one other thing happening with this cover with Wraith and Snake Eyes, which happens a little bit in the issue where Wraith's costume to me is white and gray or light gray and medium gray. And Snake Eyes' costume, we think of it as black, but it's actually sort of dark gray in Devil's Do. But it's actually medium gray in Devil's Do. And um, they end up looking in color, in value, so similar on this mm-hmm. cover to 35 that I think that could be clever. It's like, oh, they're mirror images of each other or it's the really cool bad guy and the really cool good guy. That's a statement. I don't love it. And I, I think it, it ends up being like art and color that gets a little bit away from the creative team. And it's it's like, no, these, these it, it's sort of like Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow facing off. Like Wraith is, has a lot of white in him. Uh, Snake Eyes has a lot of black in him. There should be a contrast. So uh, what happened in these issues? Uh, Jay, do you have a plot breakdown for us? Yes, I do. The Baroness, dressed attractively in a sleeveless black skin-tight something, runs down a hallway in a Cobra building. She's being pursued by Cobra Commander, who first appears to Anastasia as a strange snake guy like Globulus. And then as, well, Cobra Commander with snake arms, I guess. Snake arm Cobra Commander tells the Baroness that her search for the truth has led her right around to him. This pleases me, the Commander says. You want me to be pleased, don't you? When I am pleased, the pain is lessened. What the hell? Baroness wakes up from a nightmare and Destro is there in his mask. Destro says, my precious. Baroness says, James. Scalpel stands in the background and stares at them both like a creeper. In Washington, D.C., Hector Ramirez, along with Flint and Lady J, reveal the truth of the explosion at WNN Studios. Flint announces to the press that the Joe team has captured Cobra Commander. Meanwhile, back at the pit, Joe Colton assumes command of the team because Hawk won't answer his phone. 
Duke briefs Colton on the situation and says, in his opinion, announcing that Cobra Commander has been captured is one of the dumbest things he's ever seen. Jane asks why he expects retaliation since it was the Baroness herself who shot Commander. Nothing could surprise me at this point, Duke says. On Cobra Island, Destro meets with, with the Crimson Twins. The twins try to capture Destro, but Destro introduces them to the Wraith and the CGs lay down their arms. In Arizona, Snake Eyes, Roadblock, Clutch, and Mayday prepare to infiltrate the Colorado town of New Moon. Flint tells them, tells the team that Mirage, along with three green shirts, had gone in before the others and were making regular reports, until they weren't. Clutch and the others drop in subtly in an armored van by helicopter. In New Moon, one of the green shirts has been shot appears to be near death. The Joe, Mirage, asks one of the green shirts, Stahl, if he can count on him to maintain cover fire while he tries to obtain a vehicle for him. Stahl says, you can count on me, sir. But when the moment comes, Mirage cannot count on Stahl. Stahl leaves his position too soon and one of his teammates is killed as a result of his impatience. The Joes pick up Mirage and Stahl, but their helicopter is hit with a rocket before they can get away. The getaway van crashes to the ground. Inside the pit, the jugglers tell Colton he has two weeks to produce Hawk or they'll review the G.I. Joe team. Snake Eyes and Mayday bust their way out of the twisted van, only to find themselves face-to-face -face with Scrap Iron, Major Blood, and Wraith. Mayday tells Clutch to get the van moving. Roadblock says, what about Snake Eyes? Mayday tells Roadblock Snake Eyes sent her to back so he could fight Wraith. That was a mistake. General Abernathy, a.k.a. Hawk, is woken up by a hospital orderly in Denver, Colorado. Time to take his meds. The girl leaves and Hawk stares into the darkness. Is there something I can do for you, Kamakura, he asks. Please, Hawk, Kamakura says, stepping out of the shadows. It's Sean. When you call me by my code name, I feel like I'm supposed to kick somebody. Kamakura tells Hawk he needs to appear before the jugglers within two weeks to save the Joe team. In New Moon, the Joes arrive just as Wraith is getting the upper hand on Snake Eyes. Outnumbered, Wraith disappears, literally. The Joes on the ground are picked up by Joes in a helicopter, just as the Cobras set off a massive series of explosions that level the town of New Moon. When they arrive back at Joe HQ, Flint tells the others that not only was Cobra recording their every move in New Moon, but they added the footage to make it appear as though the Joes went rogue and destroyed the town in a bloodlust. Joe Colton is pissed off and wants to take the battle to Cobra. Duke just wants Hawk to come back. At Fort Riley, Kansas, Mirage tells Stahl he doesn't have the clearance to go to the nearest Joe base, so they're leaving him there until further transportation can be arranged. Stahl asks Mirage if he'll be facing any charges. Mirage says no, but if he's ever asked his opinion of Stahl, he'll tell them he is a childish, inattentive mess of a soldier, an arrogant blemish on a family of career military men, and the last person in the world he'd trust his life to. Later, on Cobra Island, as Alexander listens menacingly outside the door, Scalpel reveals to Destro that the Baroness is pregnant. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So... I have a top-down reaction. I like the plot of these two issues. If you were to describe to me the, the story beats, I would say, oh, this sounds like a fun, interesting G.I. Joe story. I don't like any of the specifics. I don't like most of the scripting choices. And, and you know, it's me, so I don't like some of the art and color choices. So, you know, sort of even from the beginning, like on page four, the Baroness wakes up in a sort of a hospital setting and 
She's not wearing a normal hospital gown. She's wearing one with a Cobra logo on it. But it's the like short skirt version because she's the Baroness and has to be sexy. It's like, no, no, no. Hospital gowns are like decidedly unsexy. They go down past your knees. Um, And then on the next page, for some reason, a reporter takes the podium at a White House presidential briefing. Like, no, that doesn't happen. Reporters ask questions, but... The press secretary isn't going to like yield the podium to a reporter, even if the reporter was there. Like that, that doesn't happen. The, the Joes are sort of acting, um, not helplessly, but, um, sort of all the, all the conversation around, I think the story beat of Hawk isn't here. We're in trouble. Uh, Joe Colton is here. We have to get through to Hawk. The jugglers are a problem. I like all four or five of those things, but the specifics, like none of the dialogue hits for me. The Joes sort of don't seem to know what they're doing. They seem, it it seems like Hawk is this sort of super leader and they can't do anything without him. Um, And then like the stuff with the, this green shirt who's uh, working with Mirage, he's like incompetent. And then he like, there's a panel where he's uh, seemingly holding his pistol as if he's maybe going to shoot Mirage or something. That's kind of like, what I thought. This, these, these two issues don't work for me. I'm sorry. I, I'll, I, I'll go in with the contrary view, I think. So, so I've been thinking about, about sort of the Devil's Due arc in general and how we've been i guess treating it so so you know sort of prompted by my discussion with with josh and and there's a lot of there's a lot of love for the devil's due era which uh which i i think i basically feel that that there's um and i and i enjoyed it very much at at the time but then when we get to the nuts and bolts of individual issues i think there's a tendency to maybe see more of the flaws as you explore the detail rather than sort of taking away an initial feeling perhaps of what it was like, you know, reading it for the first time or, 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 you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a conscious effort to, to try and sort of see a little bit more of the, of the positive. So I basically enjoyed these, these two issues and, and I sort of was thinking about it and, and I kind of feel like the books now has kind of reached the point where it's doing its own thing and it's, and it's feeling very different to, the, the Marvel era or, or or not necessarily trying to trying to do the same thing as the Marvel uh, era. So you've got Hawk in a wheelchair and, and leaving the team. We've got new leadership, both for Joes, but also Destro for, for Cobra. We've got, you know, quite a big sort of plot change there with Baroness being pregnant. We've got a cast of characters, which in, where some of the, the larger roles includes the likes of Claymore, Mirage, Scrap Iron, Wraith, Scalpel, um, you know, very different characters to, to the ones that were being explored in, in the Marvel era. And uh, it feels to me that, well, well, there's, you know, certainly it's not perfect. Uh, the, the art seems to be a lot more confident and dynamic uh, and at times, you know, echoing quite a, a modern image style of the, the time, which not saying is a good or bad thing, but um, is is of quite different different to uh, the, the kind of the Marvel era of uh, of art. Um, so uh, yeah, I think there's uh, a lot to be uh, to 
enjoy and be excited about these these two issues. I enjoyed them. I thought they were they're pretty good. There were little things that I didn't like, uh, like Tim said, and uh, probably it, it's it's a little of both, you know, art decisions and also uh, the occasional scripting uh, thing. The the very first sequence with Cobra Commander is the big snake thing is just weird and he he looks <laughs> inconsistent that last panel again i'm like i'm not sh- he looks like like somebody grabbed his tail you know not like yeah, he's that last panel last panel of page yeah. one he's sort of i don't know what that expression is meant to be but it looks like um <laughs> it looks it like, like that that yeah. um special edition of um star wars <laughs> right when, um han solo steps on, on Jabba. Jabba's tail I like what's going on, I think, but just visually it's, it's not the best for it. I, you know, I, I have a problem when I read things like this of trying to picture what it would look like, you know, by like a different artist or something. And and, and I just think this nightmare sequence could be incredible. Not saying Seeley's, you know, again, we, you know, we all say Seeley's good. He's just not a, a great storyteller. He doesn't use a lot of uh, blacks like, I tend to prefer, or this sequence would be good with, but um, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the these two overall. I thought it, it's different. It's really different, like you said, than the Marvel run. It feels more, I, I guess I want to say more grown up, you know, the way that the stories unfold. Before we move on too, too far, um, just on that, that sort of dream mm-hmm. sequence, I was I was um I was looking at the the summary on Yo Jo, which which is written by uh, Josh Egerbean, in fact, um and it describes that sequence in a way that my thought process didn't le- leap to that being the interpretation at the time. Maybe there's some something in the script um, that that I've sort of how not does he describe it? Picked up or so he he says. Um, the Baroness has a dream where Cobra Commander, who is half snake, is talking to her about pleasing him. And that that happens when her pain is lessened. This is a direct effect of how the brainwave scanner controls a person. The Baroness has been subjected to it many times. Destro and Scalpel are working with the Baroness to clear the effects of the brainwave scanner, and that is causing the bad dreams. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't get that. No, from it's, the not nece- story it's not necessarily. Yeah, it's not the conclusion that I would have necessarily drawn, um, but but a kind of. Yeah, it sort of has it has a degree of sense, yeah. doesn't it? Here's a line from that scene which I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> the Baroness says, "Please hold me, please." What? That's not the Baroness. Once again, I see writers at Devil's Do treating women as fragile and emotional in a way that men aren't. And yes, she's had a terrible dream, and she's hooked up to some equipment in a hospital room that's maybe also a lab so whether josh eggbean's description of this is accurate or not there is something else going on here which isn't explained and it doesn't have to be explained it could be a surprise for the next issue or maybe it's supposed to be really obvious maybe we're supposed to remember that 33 issues plus seven years plus three issues ago baroness got zapped by the rainwave scanner near the end of the marvel run but um (laughs) You know, Baroness is such a tough cookie, and here she is, um, like hugging Destro and not crying, but it seems like sort of in that direction. Please hold me, please. 
ever since I shot Cobra Commander, he's haunted my dreams. It's like, no, where's the where's the kick butt uh, Baroness I know who would who would react differently to this? Yeah, I like a more ruthless, you know, cold, emotionless uh, Baroness. That's that's who she needs to be. It's if just... if the if the argument is that she's because she's pregnant, she's having mood swings or something, then okay maybe but i also feel like that happens later in the nine months although i don't know and i think if they did that we would be like oh well of course she's got mood swings or something see in my experience it happens in advance of being pregnant and and afterwards as well <laughs> yes i i was just going to interject um with a, a good point uh, and balance for for editorial balance that uh, richard straw made on the back of our uh, last episode when we're talking about issue 33 and and some of the uh, women being emotional in in that, and uh, and so so Richard pointed out um, that uh, Lady J uh, was in fact crying at uh, the attack of the at the pit, the one that Serpentor led when Flint very heroically sort of waded into the fray, uh, and there's a panel of her there crying, and she's going, "Okay, tough guy, live up to your act," and uh, also it reminded me of uh, I was also. Uh, thinking about this and you know women crying in the original Marvel run and uh, remembered uh, the Baroness uh, crying uh, in the Rattler as uh, they I think it was at the shortly after that when they did a fly past uh, over the site of the um, the ruins of the pit where she believed that oh yeah uh, Destro had died okay so we've got some precedent of some uh, of some crying crying ladies now see i'll give lady j that one though because she just left flint surrounded by at like eight or ten killer robots so she's possibly thinking eels that, eels up inside you he's gonna die and, oh, oh okay and, eels well. and and i'll give i'll give the baroness doing that flyover if she thinks that destro has just died yeah. also that's two times out of 200 issues <laughs> plus special <laughs> missions and in devil's do We've got two or three uh, times an issue. No, we, yeah, we, you know, it's it's the true stuff with the the we, the wedding ring and with Hawk being concerned about Hawk and Baroness here. Um, I feel Don't like bring this, up that wedding ring; you'll trigger Jay. <laughs> you know, I feel like this kind of thing has happened six or seven times in you know thirty-four issues plus the seventeen issues of Frontline. So uh, it it is happening more often, and I don't think they're as earned, right. or I don't think they're earned. So I, I don't want to say that, you know, the, the two writers that Devils do so far can't do this, but it's conspicuous. How about Joe Colton's chauvinist line when they introduced Jane? Jane's a good girl to have around. You ask me, they should stay in the kitchen, but she's handy enough in a pinch. <laughs> I, I, Jane I says nice, okay. Joe. <laughs> uh, I don't. So I don't like that. I didn't either. And I don't think I don't think it's necessary I do like her reaction, though. If, you know, if they're trying to establish that this is a sort of a man out of time from the 60s. I mean, A real misogynist <laughs> hero. Well, see, here, here's the thing. Like, Joe Colton had by now shown up in uh, Marvel 86, um, Marvel around 129. Oh, yeah. And also Marvel, I think, 152, right? And he doesn't say that kind of stuff there. So there you can do that, but there isn't groundwork laid for it. 
Um, <laughs> there's a um, so there, um, I want to talk about a, a story thing. I've got that a I new think... favorite load of dialogue for this issue. I want to want to talk about an art thing that I don't love, but a story thing that I think works really well. A third of the way into issue thirty-four, Destro back on Cobra Island is talking with Tomax and Zamot, and they have this back and forth about sort of who should be in charge and how Cobra is working or isn't working with all of these vol- all the volatility recently. And I thought that that was both a, a thoughtful sort of story recap for readers who are new or or have forgotten, but also like actually a kind of conversation that would happen. And Destro, the way that he ends it, I think is great, where uh, after Wraith is revealed, he, he says, um, you're going to fall in line. And speaking of which, you're going to spend a few hours in the stockade <laughs> thinking things over, which I think is actually great. I think maybe the Marvel Hama Destro would never go that far, but I think, uh, you know, a small punishment to sort of further force their hand. Okay, so I think that's great. I think the whole scene, um, I think the reveal of uh, Wraith is really fun. Okay. That sequence sort of stuck stuck for me. I, I liked it. And um, what I found interesting about it was was the way that sort of um, basically Tomax and Zayma have got, you know, they're attempting an armed coup to, to take over Cobra, aren't they, away from him? And uh, and he sort of just kind of swaps it away, sort of fairly nonchalantly, and and says, you know, stop being silly. Uh, and and I just like that. I, I like as well the the next thing that he said after after the dialogue that you quoted. He says, "I simply don't have time for any more nonsense." It's like you know, <laughs> stop it with your silliness. We've got important things to be focusing on here. Okay, so I, I like the plot, and for this for this scene, these four pages, I really like the script. Uh, there are two things in the. I guess three things in the art that that don't work for me. Uh, one, the bottom of page ten, Seely does this thing where he draws a panel and then he copies it and pastes it and changes one thing. And mm. artists have been doing this for a long time in comics, right? You know, before the '90s, maybe before the late '90s, with Photoshop and scanners, it was with a photocopier with a Xerox machine, and certainly artists who draw digitally nowadays do it a lot because it's, it's so easy and, you know, comics have gotten really conversational. And so you, you sort of have a character just like copied and pasted a few times. Okay. So Tom X and Zaymot, uh, Zaymot says, uh, please accept our apologies, Destro. And Tom X says, but we simply have no belief left in our hearts. We do wish things could be different, but this is truly the only way. And in the second panel, there are now two Crimson Guardsmen standing there, um, pointing their guns at Destro. Okay, I have two problems with this visually. One, considering it's an armed coup, although a gentlemanly coup, <laughs> there is no tension in that second panel. The the two Crimson Guardsmen, uh, yes, they're they're standing. You know, they're not like sleeping in the fetal position, aiming their weapons at Destro. Uh, they're standing there, um, but they sort of blinked in from nowhere. And that's always a weird thing for me. I always need a little bit of like the the end of the m- movement or body language that shows that they have just walked into the shot as opposed to like standing there like they blinked in or teleported in. So in terms of like actual pose and composition, it doesn't work for me. And then in terms of like tension, sort of like how how everyone is standing and reacting. And that's actually a big moment, but it doesn't get a lot of real estate. 
but that's okay. There is no tension in this panel, which is a disappointment for me, but I'm okay with that because Jurwa and Celie are saving space for the page turn, which is this full uh, splash reveal. So before I talk about that, I just want to make a quick comparison. This morning, I read this issue of G.I. Joe in preparation for this episode. This morning, I also read a new comic that came out last week at, at comic book stores everywhere. And this is a random bit of synchronicity. This just happened to be the DC Comics Milestone Blood Syndicate issue two. And there are two times in this comic where the artist has, uh, the artist is crisscross uh, and he draws a character who's doing something and then he draws like the exact same panel a second time. And unlike Seeley, he doesn't copy and paste and then add a thing. He slightly changes what the guy is doing from the first panel to the second panel. And he does it both times. And it's like little, small changes in his, his hand is holding something and uh, his, his face is like reacting to something. And it is a tool in the toolkit of the artist to draw body language and facial expressions and acting. And not just in this Tim Seeley example here in Devil's Do Joe, but in every comic ever where I've read that an artist copies and pastes and like doesn't change things. That to me makes it seem like if it's a movie, like someone pressed pause or like in the scene, someone has quietly fired a freeze ray because like, Yes, technically, gentlemen, if the three of us are standing in front of each other talking, someone's talking and they might be moving their arms and the other two of us like aren't moving at all, right? We're breathing, our hearts are beating. Um, but in this moment from the sort of A panel to the B panel, like Tomex and Zamot, like one of them doesn't cross his arms, one of them doesn't like put his hand out with his palm up in this like presentational body language to present the Crimson Guard, Destro doesn't react at all. And so again, it's this effect of like, I'm watching a movie and it like, someone pressed pause. Okay, so then you turn the page and I do like this uh, splash, right? Wraith comes out of nowhere because he's got this invisibility cloaking technology. And Destro and it, says, hmm? I was gonna say, and it gives you the splash that you said you wanted in the, uh, um, in the backup story that you never got. Oh yeah, 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 uh, yes, uh, fair. Because um, the backup story in the three previous issues was so compressed. Okay. Uh, and Destro says, I disagree. And he's smiling and his arms are behind his uh, torso and he's calm and in control. Okay, so that's an exciting splash page. It, it's a sexy drawing of Wraith. You know, it's like it's a splash page that feels like a cover. It grabs your attention. He's pointing his weapons. He's un... Uh, stealthing. And in the foreground, you see hands reacting for both Tom X and Zamot. Great. Okay. Then what happens in the next panel? The same thing. Yeah. So in the splash page, Wraith appears and is pointing his weapons. And then in the next panel, Wraith is standing there and pointing his weapon. And so Destro continues and he says, say hello to Wraith. And I'm disappointed that half of the fourth, the fourth page of this scene is now a half-page splash of Wraith that is accomplishing the same thing as the full splash of, of Wraith. And what I really want in that final page is like more acting from Tom Axe and Zaymont. Like maybe that's the panel where now he raises his weapon and they both put their hands up and take a half step back and react. And so 
you know, between scripting, dividing up dialogue and acting into panels, and then actually drawing it. I like the plot of this scene. I like the script of this scene. I don't like the storytelling of this scene. Yeah, the I think you know a lot of the best artists and the ones who take it very seriously, they'll they'll do a, an exercise of of perhaps sketching out an entire twenty page story on a single piece of paper, even like yes, very very sort of small thumbnails of of what is is happening to kind of look at the symmetry of the overall issue, maybe sort of start thinking about color palettes, things like that. And, and perhaps, you know, something like this, you know, would have been caught up by an exercise like that, because as a single page, both of these pages are fine. They look nice. It's an interesting image of, of Wraith. It's only when you really lay them next to each other that it just, it loses the, the impact that it would have otherwise had of, of, you know, the two, the, some of the two pages is, is kind of not, as not as big as the the value of each of those individually. I wonder who did the uh, the layouts. Whether that was something that you know Brandon included That's in silly. his script, or whether he said like you know one long vertical panel, four smaller panels make up the the, the mm. left side of the page, th- or something like that. I think that's silly. Think? Yeah. I think that's it. We we could go back and listen to our two episodes with Jerwa. I don't know but if we talked about it or not. I don't get the impression that he's calling the shots that specifically. Yeah, probably not. I actually asked Brandon about this, and uh, this is what he had to say. Uh, let me see what accent I'll do. Um, I usually give a fair amount of detail and direction. I don't think so much in terms of relative panel size, sometimes if it was a big moment, but... I would definitely speak to the drama and significance of a beat, which would often result in the artist going big. I'm not entirely sure what that accent was, but hopefully you get the gist of the sentiment. Now, I have been hard on Seeley uh, in previous episodes and this episode, but when you turn the page, I will point out, right, we cut to Arizona and this team of Joes is uh, standing in, the, in front of the van. To his credit, right, in previous issues, all of these panels might have been straight on flat one point perspective drawings. And what we get in the big second panel is, yeah, it's one point perspective, but uh, the quote camera is, is tilted. And then uh, in the third panel, we get an over the shoulder shot past Flint and we can see the grid in perspective of the ceiling. We're looking a tiny bit up because roadblock is taller than Flint. In the next panel, we get another up angle. I mean, technically, it's three-point perspective if we're looking up, but it's sort of cheating here as two-point perspective. We see the grid of the ceiling. And then in the final panel, we get this downward two or technically three-point perspective of the Joes. Uh, To use a term um, that uh, Larry Hama has used, and I I think I've used in a previous episode, this final panel here is like, it's not quite Joe Kubert. Uh, uh, clothesline pins because they're much bigger but it's almost that Um, so the the sort of layout the quote camera angles of this page um, is showing more pep and and i appreciate that and if that's you know if that's sealy getting better great yeah it was was something that i i noticed um looking at these two issues as well is that i think sealy is seem appears to be slightly more confident and trying to Trying to do more interesting things with sort of the the shots, the you know, 
the angle of uh, the the composition, the you know use of perspective, and and so on. That you know sometimes it isn't in, entirely successful, but but um, it it feels like it feels like he's trying to to yeah okay. to go go for more variety of different um, kind of shots, like you say, less less of the one point, you know, straight on. All right, so in some ways, Seely is getting better, but then the next page where the van drives up the ramp um, and then it gets uh, latched onto something. I don't know what there's, there's uh, dust being kicked up and there's a sound effect for womp, 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 womp. Um, And then in the next panel where we see Mayday roadblock and clutch, uh, I see two cables. And then in the next panel at the end of this page, I see a helicopter with a tiny, tiny van attached mm. to the bottom of it. That's quite hard to see because of the way that it's colored. So in this scene, Seely doesn't visually establish how the van, that the van is being connected to the helicopter or sort of how clearly enough. Um, and then when they finally get to the city to do their rescue mission, when Roadblock and Snake Eyes open up the back of the van... This is in the third to last page of, of this issue. And they're firing out the back of the van. And then two panels later, they pull in Mirage and his green shirt. And then there's an explosion over them. And then the van lands. It seems like Seely is trying to avoid drawing the helicopter. <laughs> and this comes back to um, a comment I've made on this kind of storytelling problem uh, where... I feel like a lot of artists who uh, are still improving put the camera too close. Everything is a close-up or a medium shot. And and what this really needs here is a much clearer shot of the whole helicopter with the whole van. And so we can see how the van is like stuck under the bottom of the helicopter. Like if you're in the driver's seat of the van, I don't think you can see anything. Because part of the copter is right in front of the windshield. And then, so if you're in the driver's seat or the passenger seat of the van, you have to look sideways out. And then I don't have a good sense at all in this scene of how low the van gets to the ground and how Mirage and his green shirt, do they, is there a ladder? Do they jump? Do they climb up? Does the van swoop down and just for a moment it's low enough that they can get pulled in? But then there's there's a line of dialogue, right? Where it's from, I guess, the pilot, right? Fifteen feet, fifteen feet high and raw. And then there's an explosion, and then the van lands with all this debris not landing on the van. So, in terms of writing and visual storytelling here, uh, confusing and not satisfying. That's what I thought. I was like, that helicopter is just going to come down right on top of them. I mean, there's there's no way that it wouldn't, you know, unless like when they hit the ground, they hauled ass, which they could because they got clutch driving. But psh, come on. Yeah. As soon as that went up, I was like, they're all dead. But speaking of dead and we'll get we'll get to that here in a minute. But like all those guys, whoever was in the helicopter, they're they're just dead now, mm-hmm. we assume. I'm not sure who was in that helicopter. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was the character called Pilot. <laughs> 
Is that two green shirt pilots? Is that lift ticket and a green shirt? Is that two generic pilots who aren't Joes? That feels like a little underrighted, uh, underwritten. underwritten. <laughs> and, and, and in the way that in previous issues from Devil's Do, A, Joes have been killed and B, green shirts have been killed. And some of them have some emotional resonance. Someone's upset. We take a moment to remember them. Mm-hmm. But early on, it felt cheap. Yep. This, feels, this feels cheap. There's that sequence in um, the original Marvel run where uh, Zartan is disguising himself as Hawk and and he talks to, I think it's talking to, to Wild Bill and he says, you know, at ease trooper or something like that. And and it's kind of a tell that something's off because Hawk would never call someone trooper that, you know, he, he'd always know their, their name. So Clutch just calling the pilot, 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 this is Clutch. <laughs> We're still hitched, you know, it. Yeah, as you say, um, he might as well have said red shirt instead of green shirt. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) but I think that what this mission is, perhaps uh, Mirage and his team here is the same kind of mission that Beachhead was on with the green shirts in that frontline thing. Remember where there was like Beachhead and like like four or five Mm. green shirts, and this is like Mirage and three or four green shirts. Yeah, or one green shirt by the end of the mission. I thought maybe that was the same kind of thing and, and it went bad and now the, the real Joes have to go in and, you know, save everybody's ass. Mm. I'm I'm having a hard time with the... the Interaction between Stahl I, and Mirage? I'm having a hard time with all three green shirts in this story. So the Joes are the best of the mm-hmm. best. And if, you know, it's like the best people from the green berets and the delta force the navy seals so like like not just the best of the best the best of the best of the best and (laughs) then you have a hundred men and women right on the joe team like 72 uh joes and there's logic to having a program where you bring in new joes and also it's it's good story you know there it happens an issue is it 72 of the marvel run with the viper and repeater on the cover where Mm -hmm. Three Joes are becoming Joes because, you know, then maybe one of these, who's, who's the lady sniper who I always give a hard time from the like 10 issues ago. Mayday. Mayday. Oh, is yeah. that her? No, so, uh, she was a green shirt. Yeah. Wait, did you? Paige Adams. She got promoted. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry. Oh uh, um, sorry. I'm, I'm. I'm I'm reading these issues and uh, not keeping them in my memory as much as I should before I read the next issues. Uh, she used to be what? blonde as well. Now she's brunette. Okay, right. Thank you. Um, that's that's part of it. Thank you. So, um, like, that's cool that this character, you know, evolved over some appearances and now is a fully fledged Joe and has a costume and a codename. Great. Um, but okay, so here's a team with the best of the best of the best, and they have this trainee program. And one or two of them aren't very good at what they do. Mm. And one of them is sort of insubordinate or psychologically um, rocky. Damaged. Damaged, yeah. And, I, you know, like one of the things that I think about with all G.I. Joe comics is that it can be hard to make the characters interesting because you might not have a lot of extremes in behavior to be that good you probably have to be very smart, very physically talented, and calm under pressure. So if you have 100 people who are calm under pressure, 
it's hard to write a story where someone <laughs> is like freaking out or is like really passionate about football <laughs> or wine or this like weapon because it reminds me of this film first man that came out a couple years ago where ryan gosling plays neil armstrong right first man on the moon and gosling turns in a great performance but like that's not going to win an oscar because astronauts are all calm under pressure they're not like passionate people who raise their voices because they're doing impossible things and they're also incredibly smart and educated and physically fit and so gosling's performance in that movie is is understated right and like understated performances don't win lead oscars <laughs> and so on the one hand i i i see maybe the frustration or like the possibility that a writer like Jurwa, it's like, I'm going to have one of the Joes flip out. Or I'm going to have one of the Joes not ready for it. And oh, it can be one of the trainees, but it still doesn't work for me. It's like, no, this kid would have been filtered out before this. Yeah. That's a problem that I had with that issue uh, before. In my opinion, you would never have a Joe that was scared under fire like that, you know, or, or incompetent or just, sloppy I, I i'm totally with you and tim i i think that they all should be the top of their game they're they're the best of the best they're not going to be mm-hmm. you know doing the stuff that these green shirts have done throughout the entire devil's due series the, the idea of the green shirts isn't that they're completely green and not inexperienced or untalented or anything it's it's meant to be that you're you're taking your regular military you're taking, you know, you're filtering, identifying some of the very best of, of those and filtering them into this talent program, essentially. And then from there, the very best of those will then graduate into the Joe team. And there's this line from Flint, um, he's talking about Mirage's team, and he says, he set up this operation with a three-man green shirt unit in tow. Granted, we have a good training program, but at the end of the day, they're called green shirts for a reason. But it's you know it's not like they're summer interns sort of doing it you know <laughs> you between so. between terms at you know school it, these these are meant to be you know sort of seasoned military people who've got experience and have been identified as being you know amongst the best of the regular military and and, and sort of you know filter into a, the the GI Joe um, screening program. If I have a problem with. Uh, how the green shirts behave in future issues. I will refer to them as the G.I. Joe summer intern. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that sort of stood out about this stall the bad guy green shirt storyline, and I think we all noticed it, was that panel where he he's sort of getting annoyed with um, Mirage and they've got a panel of him like squeezing the trigger on a on a pistol. Like, are you kind of, you know, on the precipice of about to, to shoot Mirage or, you know, commanding officer because the mission is just to take, you know, too, too difficult for you, essentially. Well, I guess too pressurized. Also, I have something else that I want to talk about with that scene. So this is issue 35. This is page, okay, page 11. If that's Mirage or uh, what's his name? Stall holding that gun. It should be pointed the other direction. That's what makes it confusing. Yes. <sighs> okay, so first panel the Joe Van is driving left to right. Second panel, Mirage is on the left. Stall's on the right. Next panel, Mirage is on the left. Stall's on the right. Next panel, uh, Tim Seeley has broken the 180 degree rule, and there is now a pistol clo- in close-up with a hand sort of 
shaking it, pulling, starting to pull the trigger, and it is facing to the right. And so the visual logic is that that hand is Mirage's because it's facing the right. Mm -hmm. And then the next panel, Seeley sort of unbreaks the 180 degree rule, which which another way of phrasing that could be breaks it again and puts <laughs> Mirage back on the left and stall back on the right. But then we do see who's holding that pistol and it is stall. So we do get some some explanation, some closure in that panel. And then in the final panel, the van continues to drive to the right. And um, comics are not movies. Movies are not comics, even though we we use some of the same terms like these aren't camera angles these aren't shots these are panels and these are all drawn but i'm a firm believer that comic books should follow at least this one rule from cinema the 180 degree rule where you draw a line that is perpendicular to the picture plane to the camera lens and you can't move your camera over it you can swing it anywhere all the way up to it on the right all the way up to it on the left in a in a half circle and if you want to move your camera to the other side of the of the 180 degree line, you have to uh, cut to something neutral, like a waiter somewhere else in another scene, or you have to cut on the 180 degree line something straight on before, which is in effect creating a new 180 degree line. I made a handout about this for my for my students, and I and I talk about it when my when I show movie clips at the end of my uh, drawing semester, and. Um, uh, even if you don't, even if you don't know that term, that that concept from film, you know, I think you read the comic, and that panel is like a little confusing, and maybe you don't know why. Yeah, it totally is, mm -hmm. and that would have fixed it too. Just flip that panel. Yeah, or I mean, this this comic is being yes, this comic's being colored in Photoshop. So you know, ask ask the colorist, yeah. like, hey, can you not just color this panel? Can you? I think the technical term for flipping left, right, or right, left is flop. Can you flop this panel? <laughs> <laughs> but we we were talking about the stall, the green, the green shirt. Yeah, okay. um, let, let's just finish up on on that. So, so did you pick up on on where this storyline is is going? More or less. No. So his his name his surname is Stall. Um, I don't know if it's said anywhere, but his first name is Thomas Stall. He comes from a a uh, long line of stools <laughs> in the military <laughs> uh handy for for reaching uh shelves that are high up the, the other stall that we've seen is is barrel who is dwight stall the same name as the designer isn't mm -hmm. it? wait sorry hold my hand is is the green shirt stall going to become an actual joe with a code name that is that is a toy so thomas stall is the file name for blackout okay the, right the cobra brother of Dwight Stall barrel roll so so we're getting some foreshadowing of uh of the uh the the kind of the origin stories of why uh why this Stall brother has uh, sort of started off in the military and has you know had a falling out with the Joes and has turned so I think this this ex negative experience is is crucial in souring him uh, I'm looking to I'm, I'm anxious to see what the heel turn is you know does that happen at the end of this story it's like uh you know what's he gonna do is he gonna kill somebody is he gonna kill a joe or something i'm, I'm anxious to see mm. what's uh what's gonna happen i was gonna say it's at the end the end of the story in terms of just story terms he, he sort of completed this mission it's been a you know train wreck 
but Mirage uh, sort of says that he's he's not going to kind of proactively throw him under a bus. He's going to, you know, if he gets asked about the success of the mission, then he'll give his opinions. But he's he's sort of very blunt with um, uh, Thomas Stall. He says that his opinion is that he's a childish, inattentive mess of a soldier, an arrogant blemish on a family of career military men, and the last person in the world I trust my life to. Good luck. I want to, I want to jump back to um, something that we we haven't said yet before. That's probably worth saying. Mm-hmm. In the previous backup stories, Wraith breaks out of prison, scrap iron, and major blood. And uh, after Wraith does this reveal with Destro to stop Tomax and Zamot's hostile takeover, scrap iron and major blood show up with Wraith to fight the the joes after the van has has been dropped from the exploding helicopter and i think everyone should know out there in gi joe land that uh scrap iron was the third gi joe figure i ever bought and <laughs> he's a favorite of mine and uh even though the sculpt on the head's a little too big but he comes with an awesome pistol and an awesome accessory in the form of his missile launcher with a remote control Mm-hmm. and did i mention his color scheme and there's such great sculpting on his costume and the fact that he and airborne share much of that mold isn't that right do they really the mold am i making that up doesn't doesn't he have the same don't they have the same legs oh uh Ooh. maybe i don't know they've both got they've both got those sort of knee pads yeah they're the same legs are they okay so and scrap iron barely shows up in the animated series and barely shows up in the Marvel series. He's so cool. And he's mm. got an amazing line at the end of his file card that that actually does get a little bit picked up on here, finally, years later in the Devil's Due run. Um, and, you know, Major Blood's such a cool um, uh, badass. So I'm, I'm glad to see them back in the story. And it, it makes sense that they show up here after, you know, Wraith shows up to, to do this fight. The final panel of issue 34 is is a return to the sort of not dramatic uh straight on shot that that i've that i give celia a hard time for where scrap iron and wraith and blood are just standing there i mean i guess blood is sort of walking toward us but that panel feels like everyone wanted it to be a full page splash you know it's a very sexy page that'll sell for a lot of money because it's like a cover um and then it teases uh next wraith versus snake eyes so the beginning of 35 has this big fight between Wraith and Snake Eyes. And so I wanted to hand this back to you guys. A, what do you think about Scrap Iron and Blood in this story? B, what do you think about the Snake Eyes-Wraith fight? I always like seeing Scrap Iron and Major Blood. Definitely. I, I'm with you. Scrap Iron was one of my favorites. And I loved, you mentioned his color scheme too. I loved that the earlier Cobras, like the first three or four years, Cobra had a, definitely a, a color scheme that, that most of their guys, you know, went with, and that, that made them all look really good together. Scrap Iron's awesome. Blood was awesome. I, The fight between Snake Eyes and Wraith is a lot like the fight with Snake Eyes and the other ninja in issue 27. It's just, I, I can't understand the choreography. There's a two-page spread, and I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't know whether Wraith like smash snake eyes's visor in the top panel and that's what snake eyes is reacting to or maybe he hit snake eyes with 
same kind of move that like Daniel hit Johnny with and Cobra Kai where it paralyzed his arm or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on because it looks like Snake Eyes is kind of stuck there. And I'm like, what, did he just do some kind of move or so? I just I have no idea what's going on with that two page spread. Yeah, there's there's two panels which are a big close up of Snake Eyes's face. And it's not entirely clear what that's all about, particularly one in the top right where it's like scratch. Yeah, it looks like he's re. You know he's getting hit, but we should see we should see um, Wraith's arm in that panel, you know, or his foot or something. I'm okay for that being a reaction shot without Wraith's arm or foot, but it's a little confusing because in the previous panel it looks like Wraith is going to bring his fists down mm-hmm. and yeah, not do a handle. like like a, a right a right cross cut. Yeah, fr- from his from his right hand. That's right. Yeah. So. A couple pages later, Wraith throws Snake Eyes through a window, and then maybe yeah, it's a little unclear. It looks like Snake Eyes is being thrown through a window, and and in this first panel, we are inside the building, and Snake Eyes is crashing into the room where we are. Sir, crash! And then in the next panel, I think the idea here is that Snake Eyes has landed, recovered, and is now leaping back out of the window. Yeah, but. Because because of the similarity of the panels in composition, in size, it sort of looks like rather than happening like six seconds later, it happens like half of a second later and that Snake Eyes somehow like stops his reverse momentum and grabs the top of the window frame and like throws himself back out or like turns in space and is now like kicking into the room from the outside. And then there's this close-up of Wraith's hand grabbing Snake Eyes's ankle, and Snake Eyes's ankle is colored very reflective, and it's looking kind of like Wraith's ankle, not mm-hmm. like Snake Eyes's ankle. And I feel like this is a good place to remind everyone, like, okay, Snake Eyes doesn't have to be in pure black. That can be hard to draw or, like, hard to color sort of in relation to everything. But his dark gray should be quite different from... Uh, Wraith's medium gray or Wraith's like gray with the cool texture on it or uh, you know all of the gear on Snake Eyes all the belts and stuff has a lot of blue in it which I feel like refers lightly to one of the recolored action figures that came out around this time okay so then Wraith so I think the idea here is that uh, Wraith grabs Snake Eyes mid air and interrupts Mm. Snake Eyes flinging himself out through the window and like slams him down on the ground before Snake Eyes can complete the motion of like flinging himself out the window. But the panel uh, of Wraith on the ground slamming Snake Eyes into the ground, just using Snake Eyes's leg as a like an axis, like Wraith's pose. I don't understand why he's lying on the ground, and. Uh, th- these first four panels are, are are not good fight choreography. I'm sorry. No. Jay was saying earlier that he wanted to see, uh, a, he was looking forward to seeing a heel turn. <laughs> and uh, we, we had got one here. He's grabbed him <laughs> and uh, turned him. So. <laughs> okay. So, turn, right, so, so <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Did you say turn back nine, or turn forward? 11, 12. 12. Okay. Turn, <laughs> turn the page. Around. Okay, turn Every the page. now and then I'm grabbing snake eyes and chucking <laughs> to the ground. Wow. Uh, <laughs> turn around. 
when I look for Wraith, he has disappeared again, and I can't see him. Roadblock's hitting him on the head. Turn. Um, <laughs> all right, so page page 14. And see, the I, rhyme this, was found. Can't be found. <laughs> um, uh, Roadblock's going to pound him on the head. Mm. Um, okay, so Roadblock, first panel of page 14, Roadblock slams the butt of his big machine gun down on uh, Wraith's head. Okay, I have several problems with this. One, the inking on Roadblock's face is this kind of inking you do when you want to show a character is evil or is sort of descending from goodness into evil because you black out sort of the front of their face. So you sort of accentuate that it's like a skull under all that skin or you like just leave the eyes and the teeth. And it's it's a little cartoonish and a little overdone here. And I think it's like, making Roblox seem like a bad guy and not like a hero who's fighting for his life. Okay, so I was just thinking the same thing, clunk. All right, so see, I read about you. Wraith, is it? All right, so Roblox is upset because Wraith injured some Joes and uh, got some Cobras out. And so Roblox slams down the butt of his machine gun a second time on Wraith. I have two problems with this. One, I feel like that's going to ruin his gun, uh, his, his machine gun, right? And it is much more powerful to hold an M60 and shoot the guy <laughs> rather than like flip it backwards and use it like a baseball bat or like a tire iron. If you've got a gun, don't use it as a baseball bat. <laughs> this is the kind of writing that you do when you want the scene to be like cool. They're like, yeah, take that jerk it's like no 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 that's actually the wrong story beat here like just shoot the just shoot the guy and then also if road like roadblock can clearly see this guy is wearing like armor and he just told us i read about you so wait roadblock do you think that you're the butt of your rifle is gonna do anything to this like all of you are wearing helmets like every cobra wears a helmet and this guy's wearing like crazy stealth technology. Now, you could say, well, Tim, it's like really expensive, fragile technology. And if like one little like electric line or servo gets cut, then his, you know, fancy equipment doesn't work. Like, okay, maybe. So in the third panel, Clutch is like starting to see this like escalate and Roblox getting upset. Uh, and he says, beat up a couple of my friends too. And I don't like that, Krang. And then I, I'm sorry, I hate this panel. Clutch says, no more, man. You, uh, you got him. And like, we've seen this in movies and TV shows and comics where the hero like starts to lose their sense of self and it's escalating. You know, it's like they're punching the bad guy and punching the bad guy and the punch. It's like, Leonardo, stop, stop. It's not the shredder. It's just a foot soldier, right? Like, (laughs) it's the shredder you're angry at, right? Or like, like Batman, no, like you can't kill the Joker. You're beating him to death. Like, okay, we've seen this before they're at war this is a terrorist like no shoot him shoot him and yes hit the back of his armored helmet seven more times like no clutch don't interrupt don't interrupt this i'm not concerned that roadblock is losing himself in his anger like let him let him beat this guy up he's totally in the wrong because the next panel he's not down and out he gets up and runs away trips roadblock out uh, over and uh, gets away you know he should have kept on whacking him he doesn't just get away. He walks by clutch. Yeah, and they, they just mm-hmm. kind of walk by each other. Whoa. Don't you even think, whoa, another time, friends. Also, no, Wraith 
is such a, and then I have another problem with this scene. Like Wraith, this is not the time for Wraith to flee. Wraith is fleeing because the issue is over, right? It's yeah. like, like when, when I watch episodes of G.I. Joe, which I think is a well-written show, Oftentimes, Cobra Commander calls for retreat at the end of the episode because the tide has actually turned. And as a comparison, I've been watching some episodes of Mask. And it's a fun comparison because it's like G.I. Joe, but it's not. And I don't think it's written as well, but it's really fun. And I just watched two episodes where uh, Miles Mayhem, the leader of Venom, the bad guys in Mask, at the end of the episode, he calls a retreat, not because the tide has turned, but because we're at minute 20. And the show's over. And it's like, no, the rules are the bad guys have to, like, get away. And so I feel like Wraith runs away here because the scene is over. And, oh, you know what? Does he uh, does he know that Cobra's going to blow up at the town? All right, maybe that's it. Maybe. But still. Oh, I, actually, I had one thing that I, that I didn't like about this page that you've not mentioned, Tim, which is... Mm. Which is that um, Wraith has just established himself as being the, the the better hand-to-hand in combat fighter than Snake Eyes, who is the baddest of the bad of of, of GI Joe, and I don't don't know if him bettering Snake Eyes is entirely deserved because up to this point he's he's established that he's a you know cool sneaky guy who's got a cool suit rather than necessarily a master uh, hand-to-hand uh, you know combat specialist. But anyway, that aside, uh, he beats. Uh, snake eyes uh, but then it's roadblock that gets the better of him in hand-to-hand combat or gun butt to, to head combat i think possibly roadblock might have thought that wraith's suit was uh armor you know was like would would not would be able to, to withstand the the blast from the m60 and, and that's why he hit him with it you know the, the way that he did because <laughs> <laughs> he said he read about him so you know maybe he thought my gun's not going to do any good if I shoot him, but I can I can crack him with it. You know, I'm reminded that the word hate is strong. My stepmom and discouraged me from using that word in high school. So <laughs> one, two, three, four. Panel four. Uh, I previously said that ha- I hated that panel, and I want to take that back because I can slightly no prize it. If the idea here is to show Roadblock losing it, that third panel, which has Krang as yeah. a sound effect, if you copied and pasted that three more times krang <laughs> krang krang clang right like it's like no no this 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 well th- then it is escalating and i still don't think the scene quite works but um especially then not i can see clutch just pops up and runs away <sighs> yeah wink on the next page some hisses show up and I don't think there there certainly doesn't need to be a splash page where we see like hisses for the first time in this scene, in this issue, in this story. But the way that the hisses are introduced in the middle two panels of the next page, it's like, well, we just see a little bit of their fronts. Well, we just see the little bit of the front of one of them. Well, we just see the, yeah, the gun turret of shot. one of them with, scra- with scrap iron in them. And I feel like it, it uh, let's say that they weren't hisses. Let's say that they were um, like incinerators, like the the Cobra, you know, not, they're not fire vipers or pyro vipers, but the Cobra incinerators, right? Let's say you had two Cobra incinerators or Cobra heat vipers come in and you only showed like a little bit of their like knees and feet coming in in that first panel because they're looking down. And then you only showed the like tip of their like missile launcher or like flamethrower in that second panel, right? It's like, are you avoiding 
showing these 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 characters characters in finger quotes here because it's either a specific tank or a specific costume like i know what a hiss looks like if you show me a little bit of it i know what i know what the rest of it looks like and if you show me a little bit of it i do know what it is oh that's that's a hiss and it's a hard comic to draw and seal uh jerwa's putting in a lot but i do think the layout that introduces this very specific favorite for Mm -hmm. a lot of people uh vehicle in this scene needs to be uh, given some oomph Mm. it needs to be presented a little more i I think they can just about get away with it because it is a hiss and that is so iconic so we we know exactly what it is from just a little bit of the front or a little bit of the gun turret um and then a little bit more on the next page uh we we sort of see the whole thing but uh, how about this if it was a different vehicle that i don't think that i think that would have been um, less successful all right how about this there's there's the second panel of mirage bringing snake eyes uh over uh over his shoulder out of the out of the building and mayday says if we hurry we can slip out with more, more no more trouble and then they get to the van and someone says you were saying fine first round's on me you don't have to do this but you could add a little like oh no hisses it's like rats two hisses or yeah, yeah something you know just to to present a little them. a little cue <clears throat> excuse me a little cue that the characters also see those his tanks coming up behind them yeah you were you were saying is supposed to do that it's a little indirect and i think if if you were mm, saying yeah. was if the camera was focused on the his tanks five if it was it was if it was five feet off the ground and looking right past whichever joe is getting into the driver's seat of that van looking over the shoulder down the street at the two hisses, kind of like how we see Mayday in the previous panel. But if instead of a building behind her, there was a hiss and she's getting into a van, then you were saying would connect more with the mm-hmm. art. And, yeah. and I do appreciate that Seeley pulls the camera back and shows the whole alley so we can see the distance with, um, you know, the, the two hisses and the van. Um, but, you know, it's... The, present present the hisses a little bit more that's what i'm asking for so let's get to the big finale here my question is did mayday get blown up i think that's a i think that's an unspoken cliffhanger i don't think it's even a cliffhanger i think it's it's just a gap in the storytelling so so she's running towards the the helicopter mayday's almost there and then move it move it move it i think uh, and, and then the rest of the story, obviously, they don't mention the fact, you know, that Mayday's dead or anything. I think it's it's just un... Or decidedly alive. Yeah, yeah. Or I think it's just left unspoken that, that she made it to the um, helicopter before the explosion. See, now what they, they should have had in that last panel is her hanging onto a ladder rope, being trailed away, Yeah. you know, from that helicopter. That would have been badass. Or, or when we cut back to the pit at 6 a.m., and Duke is saying New Moon, Colorado is gone. This is after the page turn of all the big explosions. You know, she can be there like with a bandage on her forehead or they can say, you know, like the team made it back in one piece. Yeah. Except for the green shirts awesome. or whatever. Flint should have said, we didn't lose anyone important. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. I liked that ending. I, I loved that. I was like, you turn the page, you know, the the explosion you see under the helicopter on page 19 and then you turn the page and it's like holy shit they just like blew up like two city blocks and then when you get back to the um 
to the pit. Like, I think that's Duke is saying, you know, it, everything is gone. And it's like, wow, that's that's a serious escalation of, of uh, the kind of thing Cobra's done. I think that the big page with the two-thirds splash of the whole town getting blown up, that should fall on a left page. That should be a page turn mm-hmm. reveal. Mm-hmm. I think turning the page from that to four Joes standing around a, a oh, table. Oh, yeah, is that the way it is? Is, is less interesting and that could be on a right side of the of the book yeah all right so um i, I, I want to get back to this this comment i had at the beginning of the show where colton has been brought in and he's trying to help and i think the jugglers are overused in the devil's yeah. do run yeah, yeah. and th- there's there's this i feel like i think they show up twice in the original marvel run and um, I feel like they're they're explained just enough. And okay, in the in the '80s GI Joe cartoon, the GI Joe team is sometimes like a stand-in for the entire American military. <laughs> yeah, which is like silly and unrealistic. And in the Devil's Due comic, I feel like the jugglers become this stand-in for like all of the government and military bureaucracy i don't mean bureaucracy in a bad way i mean like management uh anyone who would like give the joes funding or give them a hard time and i think the name is silly the more you use it and i think when they like refer to them specifically like ah you're the jugglers it's like no i don't think they call themselves that you know like i understand that in in government committees get names like right now in like 2021 and 2022 there are a couple republicans and uh democrats in congress who are trying to work together and they call themselves the problem solvers caucus right like there are different little like subgroupings like that without being like specific committees and so yes you might have like six or seven generals at dod who like gave themselves a little uh, name. But sort of Duke and Claymore and Flint and, and everyone with Joe Colton and without, it seems like I, I appreciate that Jerwa is trying to show the team is sort of um, listing without Hawk and that Hawk's making it worse by not answering the phone, which is a weird note, um, and <laughs> like com- coming in and like saying anything. It's like, no, he just got shot and he's got PTSD and we're like, we're not even using that term. And I feel like rather than him sulking by himself, anyway, but the idea that the Joes are having a hard time without Hawk, Hawk's making it worse by not saying anything. Factions are trying to hurt the team. And then like Colton comes in to do some good. And even with him, the leadership and the Joes like need to figure it out. Like, I like that. They need to figure it out. But I don't like how they're sort of like, what do we do? Yeah. They're, again, it goes back to the Joes being portrayed as not competent, you know? And these are the, these are the actual Joes, not just the green shirts. Yeah. It treats Hawk a little bit like he's like a superhero. Yeah. It's like, well, look, but, but Hawk does everything for the team. It's like, he's the guy. And there's one or two bits of dialogue, which sort of leans in that direction. And it's like, no, he's, he's, he's a, he's a general. Yes. And he's great. But it's like, there's always been leadership in Joe without him. And when did Flag die? 16 or 17? And then in the Rod Wiggum run, in the, I don't know, the 30s or 40s, Hawk 
gets promoted and I forget who it is, but someone's in the hospital and he, he like gives Hawk yeah. his star or his stars. Right. It's like, no, the Joes aren't like left out to dry here. It's like, Duke's like, what do we do? Claymore's like, I don't know. What do we do? And Colton's like, I don't know. I think we got to do something. <laughs> um, it's like, no, there's a system in place. Like, I feel like there's a scene missing where earlier in this issue or before this story arc, someone or the jugglers like wait the joes went public here right but i feel like there's a scene where some faction in government or the military has given the joes like a a one more strike and you're out ultimatum yeah it seems like this empty thread of oh they're gonna review the team and and i was like doing the plot breakdown and i'm like okay they're gonna review the team that's terrible i'm like that's not a huge threat you know it's like yeah they could take their funding away but it's not a threat, like in the same way that Cobra is a threat or something, you know? It's like, yeah, I, I think that there's too much, way, way, way too much of the juggler stuff going on. It's like every issue. If if Jurwa is setting up something like with uh, Green Shirt Stall becoming, is it Blackout? If Jurwa yeah. is doing like an escalation where in a couple issues the Joes have a review and then in a couple issues they get... Uh, like shrunk down and then in a couple issues they're going to get defunded that would be cool if he's setting up something long term but i don't know that i have the patience for the sort of slow version of that when the stakes at the beginning are low but also at the same time sort of artificially inflated like that's what doesn't work for me okay should we move on to the final cliffhanger shocker reveal baroness is pregnant I have a quick question. Yes. Mark, you read these comics originally when they came out, right? Yeah. Do you remember how you reacted then with this? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I know I enjoyed this era uh, at this point. I don't know that necessarily that reveal made a massive impact to me. I, I sort of imagine I probably felt much as I do now, which is, huh, that's an interesting <laughs> turn. See how, see how that uh, pans out. I just want to see, is she going to get a, a maternity leather corset armor <laughs> made? You know, like she wears? Yeah. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be a variant, a, a variant figure, pregnant Baroness figure. Mm. Uh, I feel like if reading comic books have taught me anything, right? Like Spider-Man 75 from uh, 1990, what was it? Seven, part four of Revelations, the end of the clone saga. Or any, you know, or or uh, was it like X Factor sixty eight when Baby Nathan goes to the future <laughs> at Marvel in like nineteen ninety one? I feel like whatever happens, it's like she she's gonna. This is my guess. She's gonna have the baby, and the baby's gonna go somewhere. <laughs> the future. A cobra is gonna take Tatooine. Yeah, the, uh, uh, Nor- Norman Osborn. <laughs> Nor- Norman Osborn's gonna take the baby. <laughs> Cobra Commander is going to take the baby and not say so. Cobra Commander is going to take the baby and blame it on the Joes. The Joes are going to take the baby. Destro is going to take the baby. Someone's going to take the baby. And then the um, next writer won't okay. even pick the that Goblin back King. Up. <laughs> no, I think what's actually going to happen is that Jer uh, was not going to Jer was not going to be able to uh, resolve this yeah. fascinating uh, plot. Bonus, um, I'm going to take your baby. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, meant to be David Bowie. Uh, I thought this was an interesting plot. I liked the writing of how Scalpel tries to 
like, you know, start to deliver this important news and is doing it diplomatically and Alexander shows up and gets to leave. I really like the body language and the acting that Seely does in the final panel. For Alexander? Where, yeah, where he is, he, he's, he's leaning his head in towards the door. He has his hand cupped to the door and his ear. And then his other hand is up in a fist and he's slightly gritting his teeth. Now, it's a little silly or exaggerated because that's a thick cobra-based door. And I don't Blast think... Blast door. <laughs> but, but I will forgive that because what the, what the scene requires is that Alexander gets this interesting information. And whether he hears it because the door hasn't finished closing or he's got a listening device or he turns on a bug or turns on the comm through the door, whatever... It does kind of look, though, in the composition of that final panel, there's so much headroom. It sort of looks like there's meant to be one more word balloon, like to the right of Alexander's Destro's head. Destro's saying, maybe this child won't be a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> and Alexander, oh, I hate him. I hate him again. That's a nice panel of scalpel, that middle panel, where he's handing the Game Boy to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, Destro, who's the who's the guy in Danger Girl who looks just like Snake Eyes? That's this is what I see <laughs> when I, when I've when I've referred to um, when I've referred to Tim Seeley as drawing a lot like J. Yeah. Scott Campbell. This panel is a good example where um, it's this it's the third to last panel on the whole issue, uh, and how the eyes, how the face gets a little slimmer down by the mouth and the chin. There's sort of a a little bit of a furrowed brow. Like I, I see Tim Seeley here doing a lot of mm-hmm. J. Scott Campbell. J. Scott Campbell, of course, has drawn G.I. Joe. And of course, Danger Girl is like one part G.I. Joe, one part James Bond, and one part uh, Charlie's Angels. So every time I flip through uh, Danger Girl, the original issues that J. Scott Campbell drew, I thought, man, this guy should have just drawn some G.I. <laughs> Joe. It would have been nice. I spy with my little eye. I've got lots. I've got lots and lots. I, I got a couple. Um, so I spy, the name of the story is Bad Moon Rising. Bad Moon Rising is a song performed by Credence Clearwater Revival, the lead single from the album Green River, out in 1969. It is also the name of of the second studio album by American rock band Sonic Youth, which came out in 1985. Thematically, how do you guys see the title relating to this story? What What is it? Is does the is the Bad Moon referring to Stall because he's going to become a bad mm. guy? Is it about the pregnancy? Is it about Wraith? Trouble on the way. Yeah, Stall would be the only thing that makes sense to me. But if if the title of the story is related to that story then that you know his part should have been a little bigger that i would have used that title you know if it was a focus on him on on like i said the heel turn you know instead of just first part of uh an unraveling of his mind trouble on the way as well also you know loom you know this whole thing with hawk you know falling apart a little bit and the the jugglers might now come in and interfere and disband the joes could be could be the Baroness, the sort of this news, what that could portent for if, uh, the future. If the answer, if, you know, Jerwa's answer actually were 
It's like it's 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 a it's sort of a generic catch-all phrase for like you know bad stuff coming. I'm also fine with that. I don't need it to specifically uh, link to anything in the story, although that's cool. Um, my first I Spy is uh, after page six in issue thirty-four. There is a full-page ad for the GI Joe Venom versus Valor direct to DVD and direct to VHS animated movie mm-hmm. episode. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Valor versus Venom comes after Spy Troops, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Valor versus Venom, uh, and actually, I actually do have this DVD, although I haven't watched it since it came out. Uh, Valor versus Venom, uh, both Spy Troops and Valor versus Venom were computer animated. Mm-hmm. Those two years, that was the only quote programming the only animation that gi joe got which at the time felt like not enough but anything was was uh something and um there are a couple people related to gi joe or comics and animation who worked on uh valor versus venom uh carrie gamble comic book artist will minio comic Uh book artist and animation storyboard artist and executive producer and gi joe animation storyboard uh, storyboard artist and producer uh storyboarded on this uh so did art nichols who's also um done some comics uh that's that's my that's my first eyes by yeah i don't know how well it stands up because i've not i've not watched it uh, for for a number of years but at the time it felt like it had some decent production values behind it it stood you know stood up pretty well to the the, the quality of cgi cartoons that were being produced at the time outside of the main studios anyway uh, i should say will minio not just a storyboard artist on venom versus valor also a producer i've never seen that one my next i spy was uh some new toys new toys <laughs> so first up destro did you notice destro was in his black turtleneck yep. look from his uh, version 10 figure, 2003. At the very last scene of page 35, he's back to his classic uniform. I thought it was weird that they put him in the in the turtleneck. Well, I didn't think it was weird. I liked it because they're trying to stay current with the toys. But then at the very end, when Scalpel tells him that the Baroness is pregnant, he's back in his classic, you know. Right, 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 right. So I don't know why they did that. Yeah, curious. Mm. But yeah, so we had that Destro scalpel of course yeah so we've seen yeah so that destro was uh 2003 spy troops with grunt uh, yeah scalpel we've seen quite quite a few times now mm. so i wasn't gonna call him him out and, and neither the uh the crimson twins in their their red out, outfits we've seen that a couple of times uh i think this might be the first appearance of roadblock in his um look of the time i think it's closest to version 11 from 2004 he's got this kind of textured vest and um uh, armbands made out of bullets not a fan of that look was mirage a figure yes that's good yeah M- M- mirage first appeared in 1993 in mega marines oh, okay. uh, as a mega marines sub- subset so he's he's kind of from the original run but i don't think he appeared in in the marvel book or maybe just on, on one panel or something but he was re-released uh, four times uh, from 2002 to 2005 using that original mold, but with different colors. So, so he was very current in in terms of being re-released, but but also you know just a cool looking figure from the original run that 
that just wasn't was underutilized so so sort of ripe for you know giving a bit of uh give, give time to in the, in the book and and in in terms of i spy his color scheme here in these two issues refers to uh it's a little hard to tell which one specifically it is but refers to his version two or three or four <laughs> figure which is green and black and and silver right it's definitely not he's definitely not colored like his mega marine uh initial yeah. appearance from from 1993 which had blues and uh like neon and the final one from me was ali viper 2 uh version 8 from 2004 um so quite a cool looking figure unusually uh for figures uh kind of you know up to this point he had um a removable knife on his chest which was quite a cool uh play feature but uh, unlike yeah unlike other previous versions of ali viper he didn't have that uh he didn't have a kind of mask that was uh movable up and down like a sort of a sort of face plate protective plate face plate that could kind of move up and down so a bit different from previous versions i've got three more i spies i, I can do them quickly uh issue 34 um, in the Devil's Do news page, the full page of text that comes after the story, there are uh, photos from the 2004 International G.I. Joe Collectors Convention. Uh -huh. um, and the three photos are reproduced very small, uh, but you see Blaylock and uh, a, a tiny smidge of the, of the convention. So that's, that's one. Uh, issue 35 has a letter printed in the letters page written by thomas wheeler thomas mm -hmm. wheeler is known uh in joe fandom for doing some work on the 1997 and 1999 toys r us exclusive uh action figure re-releases um and also uh he's the guy who's written a letter after every issue thomas wheeler sort of famously has written a letter like he wrote a letter for every issue of the marvel run and uh, i believe has kept it up for I believe kept it up for Devil's Due and also IDW. And if you look at all the letters pages, his name shows up a few times. Yeah, cool. Well, while we're talking about uh, things in the back of the book, I noticed that uh, that there was a advert for fan choice figure. This fall, votes to decide which Devil's Due G.I. Joe characters jump from the printed page to the toy shelf. Yeah, this is in issue 35. It's a full-page ad. It reproduces the Devil's Due's very first cover by J. Scott Campbell and a smidge of two other covers. And uh, it encourages people uh, to go to the Devil's Due website and to choose from 10 important milestones in the Devil's Due G.I. Joe saga. And it, it refers to the fact that Kamakura has quote made the leap yeah um that was that was my next uh i spy you did you vote at the time mark you i were, didn't you were, I, um you were on the internet yeah i was on the, the internet why would would i vote i can't remember voting <laughs> in this you'd think i would have done um were you buying where... the toys at the time maybe that's why you didn't yeah you, I, I, um, I think i was <laughs> i think i was buying a few not all of them just the odd one here and there yeah Seems like the thing, sort of thing that I should have done, but I don't actually recall doing it. Um, I might have done. I don't know. It was it was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, my final I spy, and this this is only tangentially related to GI Joe, but um, you know I'm reading the issues, not not the graphic novel collection, not scans on a computer, 
and it's not a nice spy from from Blood Syndicate issue two, is it? <laughs> I mean, what, let's that, keep it to this book. <laughs> um, that that is any comic book that that does something effectively can be a comparison for any other comic book. Chris Cross um, is a okay, great so, artist. That those two panels yeah, were just amazing. beautiful. You were talking about it, and I was yeah, just staring at them like, "Wow, look at the yeah. figure work." Penciling, inking, coloring, and this new Blood Syndicate, and and I have read the first two issues, and I like the story. Um, and I, I didn't read the original Blood Syndicate. Um, anyway, okay. So um, uh, at the end of issue thirty four, one of the things one of the things I like about reading old comics is the ads and the in house ads. What else the publisher was doing at the time? Mm-hmm. Some of that stuff you can see a character or an artist make an early appearance. Uh, sometimes you think you see things that were published and didn't catch on and you have forgotten about. In a previous Devil's Due issue, there was a one-page ad for Aftermath, and it was some new initiative from Devil's Due. And that that ad is repeated here, right? Uh, a new breed of hero. This is a full-page ad at the end of issue 34. A new breed of hero is born from the minds of, and then it lists four known comic book writers, Chuck Dixon, Joe Casey, Marv Wolfman, Ron Mars. And then the next... Um, th- Two pages plus the inside back cover and the back cover. So effectively, the next four pages are all full-page ads with the covers of issue number ones of this new, what it turned out to be was, superhero line from Devil's Do. And I'm interested in this for a couple reasons. One, each of these four superhero books, Defects, Breakdown, Blade of Kumori, and Infantry, um, are by solid creators, both writers and artists. Um, each of these four images are like, f- you know, fun and compelling, and I would I would consider giving a shot. Each of these did get published. There were each of them had a four or five or six issue miniseries um, in 2004, 2005. And then some of them five years later got collected as trade paperbacks published by Arcana. The two things that sort of are most notable to me here is that Stefano Caselli draws defects. And at this point in Devil's Due, he has done some of, I forget what, Voltron or one of the other non-G.I. Joe books. But pretty soon in the timeline of Devil's Due, he's going to be drawing G.I. Joe. And he doesn't draw G.I. Joe for very long. And then he gets snapped up by Marvel, where he's been ever since, and is drawing Marvel comics right now as I speak in the middle of 2022. Uh, The other reason why this is interesting to me is that the final of these four ads is for a miniseries called Infantry, right? This December, the revolution begins, written by Joe Casey and drawn by Clement Sauve or Clement Sauve. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, S-A-U-V-E. He was a really talented artist, and he did some comics in the middle 2000 aughts, and he was character designer on G.I. Joe Renegades. The reason why G.I. Joe Renegades looks so awesome is because of that guy. And he uh, he died young in 2011. Um, And he's one of those guys in comics who, at the time, I don't think... the, The image on the back cover... The ad is it's a cover. He didn't draw the cover, right? So you're not going to see his work until you like flip open the 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 first issue of this miniseries infantry. But um he's one of those comics artists who was drawing in a just in a different style. Like he wasn't drawing like Brian Hitch 
and Jim Lee in 2004. He, he had he had different influences and he had an incredible sense of design. And sometimes people like to work in animation because it pays better. Also, sometimes it's just a nice change of pace. Um, so seeing this as a back cover, I thought, oh, I wonder that would that would be. And I like Joe Casey as a writer. That would be a fun miniseries to you know track down you know, order it off of eBay if someone had the set or if I was lucky enough to find it in a dollar bin at a store uh, while while on a trip, uh, I would I would gobble that up. Cool. I'm looking uh, and I see two accents over the vowels E. So I, I think it's uh, Clément Sauvé because he was French-Canadian. And actually, just two weeks ago, a big Kickstarter campaign wrapped up uh, for an art book collecting comic art uh, animation designs and sketches of his got uh, funded on Kickstarter. Mm, good job. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm skipping the most obvious thing since we're reading Devil's Due Comics. Uh, you all have seen his work, listeners, because he did the three covers for Dreadnoughts Declassified. Ah, that's good. Good cover. Um, that, was, that, was the, that was kind of the image, the interlinked cover image that builds up to... Uh, my next I Spy was Kamakura. So he is appearing in a Mufti and uh, he is named as Sean. And I believe that the in the main book up to this point, we have not actually seen, seen him unmasked or know his actual name. But uh, it's Sean Collins there. And, uh, and I think that reveal comes in the Mas- uh, Master and Apprentice story which is sort of running in parallel at this point uh, from May to September 2004, a four-issue miniseries, which we'll get back to uh, at, the, at the end of uh, this this main run of the book. I don't think there's too many, apart from the reveal of, of Sean's name, I don't think there's too many things that uh, are actually, you know, connected to, to, the, to the main book itself. Mark, are you, are you hinting that if someone was reading both the main book and that Master and Apprentice miniseries concurrently, this scene with Kamakura in Hawk's hospital room would resonate differently or more. Yeah, episodes... beyond beyond the reveal that that it's him, that his name. No, well, I, I guess I guess it would resonate differently in, in terms of it would it, the the character would be more front and center in people's minds, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's you know that's Sean Collins. It was his you know, revealed in the miniseries and, and he would just went, had that cool four issue arc, which was, you know, had that art by Sir Stefano Caselli, I think, wasn't it? Oh, right. Yeah, he did. Right. Thank you. He did the first Master. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. That really cool story <laughs> nice. with the great art. And, and now, and now he's back in the main, main book. So it's, it's, I think, yeah, for, for us reading it in, in the main, uh, sort of without that sort of tangent, it, it means that we've not really seen an awful lot of, Kamakura in the last few months up to this point. Um, so yeah, probably res- does resonate ever so slightly different. This is good to hear because going back to when we were talking about the story of these two issues, this scene, I thought some Joe should show up and try and guilt trip Hawk into coming back and to be supportive, but I wasn't sure why it was Kamakura. And guys, remind me, was there an earlier scene many issues ago who who refers to the Green Power Ranger? Is it Hawk? It's Hawk, yeah. Old Man Hawk, yeah. Okay, so this is it's like, okay, they got off on the wrong foot. 
Hawk wasn't taking the new guy seriously, and here the new guy's trying to be a friend. Mm. Okay. I wasn't sure why it was this guy. Yeah. And, and as a bit of a tangent, did you, you know, the uh, the actor, here's another Sean, the actor Sean Bean, he seems to have it both ways with his, his name. Why is, you know, surely for consistency, it would be Seen Bean or Sean Bourne? <laughs> <laughs> um, that aside. Uh, so here, Sean or Seen is wearing um, a I Am 10 Ninjas t-shirt which uh, relates to the Diesel Sweeties online strip, which sold T-shirt merchandise. So the creator of that strip is a guy called uh, Richard Stevens. He said at the time in an interview, I Am 10 Ninjas was one of my most popular T-shirts of the year, but it started out as a a throwaway line in the middle of another comic with a different artwork to the to the shirt then the shirt came uh, later but was very popular another one of his popular t-shirts of the time was uh was the phrase bacon is a vegetable okay and one of my last i spies is uh is just an observation about uh last time we talked about uh wraiths the look of wraith and the fact that it was a very um complex design you know akin to brian hitch doing you know all of the scales on uh, and Captain America's armor, uh, and uh, I, I noticed that uh, here Wraith does have a sort of slightly simplified design compared to the the former. So, so it's a more scaled back, simplified version of the the Talent Caldwell uh, version of uh, of the de- design. So all of those sort of like hexagons that that sort of were all over his armor, for example, uh, those those have kind of now disappeared. So. Yeah, the the look of the costume, as as we kind of speculated at the time, has kind of been a bit pared back and kind of does look slightly different with a with a different artist or art team. And uh, for my final I Spy, I, I've decided to introduce a brand new feature, uh, <laughs> and and I'll I, I think I'll make a a, a jingle <laughs> which I'll insert here. Yeah. The feature is called Back Once Again with the G.I. Joe Master. It's all about Tim Seeley's idiosyncrasy of uh, his kind of layouts, where he seems to sort of just really favour the use of of a character's back to the camera in his uh, shots. So I'll just take this, you know, a couple of moments to to linger on, on some of his use of back to camera here. We have the back of Duke and Colton on page 6 of 34 as they discuss things about Hawk, really. Whatever it takes, Duke, please call me Joe. There's a nice shot of the Crimson Twins looking out of a window with their backs to us. And in issue 35, Kamakura walks uh, out of a door with his back to us dramatically. And then a couple of pages later, Alexander walks out of the door with his back to us dramatically. <laughs> Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. Did uh, anybody have any errors? Not really no. anything major. I think we touched on the... You know, oh wait, I had one. Uh, in issue th- in issue thirty five, the van after they've grabbed 
Mirage and his green shirt. The van is driving away, and whoever's driving it, uh, Clutch says, uh, nice shot, Roadblock. And Mayday is not on top of the van. And then you turn the page, and Mayday is on top of the van. Actually, you can chalk that up to Miss Mayday. And then we see her up <laughs> on the van. So I feel like at mm. the bottom of the previous page, Either we need to see her on the van, or we need to see her... Yeah, or swap her up onto the van. clutches panels. So, yeah. It's very small, but she's missing from the last panel of page 11. So, uh, around about page 15-ish of issue 34, where we first meet Mirage and his team in an alleyway behind a dumpster, there's an agent called Halm, H-U-N? Han. Horn? Horn. Um, so uh, it says, horns down. What do what do we do? And um, it, the dialogue says that horns down, but uh, the the shadow beneath her seems to suggest that she's levitating. <laughs> she's mostly dead. Uh yeah, I'm going to no-prize this. Uh, <laughs> the, di- the, the dialogue is, Han's up. She's, this is, what do, what do we do? <laughs> She's defying physics. Quote of the week, quote of the week. Quote of the week, quote of the week. Quote of the week, quote of the week. Quote of the week. So, favorite line of dialogue. I've got, beyond the, beyond the one that we've already talked about, which is in kind of my new favorite, uh, <laughs> calm down dear beyond that i've got two favorite lines uh, did either of you single out something um i just like the line where uh flint says we do have a good training program but they're called green shirts for a reason i thought that was a good line and other than that nothing really jumped out at me as far as like clever lines go i liked Tomax. Uh, in 34 during the the attempted right before the um the two crimson guardsmen are pointing their weapons at destro and zamot says please accept our please accept our apologies destro and tomax says but we simply have no belief left in our hearts and i thought that was great Mm. In, in the previous page they're explaining how tumultuous it's been and i love the idea that you know, the, the bad guys do this for money, for power, for glory, uh, for for rage and bloodlust. And sometimes th- I think the use of the word here, belief, you know, like, no, they believe, believe in Cobra, however misguided. Um, I think that line's great. We have no belief left in our hearts. Very good. No, so the two uh, the two lines that I had were both from Clutch. Uh, I, and he says... I know you two had orders to drop us 30 clicks outside the town, but our boys are knee-deep in sheep dip down there. Great. Knee-deep in sheep dip. And then then there's another one where it says, uh, this is after they've just been, uh, the the van has been blasted out of the air, and this this van, which is potentially the, the greatest van in the history of vans, it's you know it's got heavy armor and resealing tires but you know has dropped 15 15 feet from an exploding helicopter and is able to drive away um so so the dialogue is major blood and scrapper are here 
that's good. I'd hate to think we were shot down by complete strangers. That was the one. I forgot about that line. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that. That 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 should have been my uh, my favorite line of dialogue. Uh, I like that too. That cracked me up. Yeah. Since I'm always ready to point out one more thing, which I want to be a little more. Um, you mentioning the van here, I'm I'm reminded that when we first see the van in 34, when the Joes are gearing up and then the van drives up the ramp and then it gets winched to the helicopter, um, we never clearly see what's stenciled on the side uh-uh. of the van, what what their cover is. I can sort of make it out. It's like Leo's spooky delivery, Leo's special delivery, Leeds <laughs> special delivery. And um, I'm slightly disappointed because that is an opportunity for, if not a joke... Something a little something, clever, yeah. you know, like it, it doesn't have to be like a hilarious pun, you know, like something that's obvious to Joe's and the readers as like Joe's incognito that like Cobra should get, but they wouldn't because it's the story for our benefit. It doesn't have to be like that, but it's, you know, something. I kept like, trying to the see way what, that it in, was, what it said too. The way that in, in the Marvel and IDW, Hama G.I. Joe, Cobra gets anagrammed, mm-hmm. you know, it's Broca and all these different mm-hmm. things, Arpco. It doesn't have to be. Basically, I I just want I just wanted to be that Simpsons joke where there's an uh, the FBI is uh, they're like bugging Homer and Marge and the their van their white van I think is this is from season five or ten there's there's a white unmarked van parked outside uh, the Simpsons house and they realize that they've been made and they panic and they drive away and then a second later a different <laughs> white van pulls up in its place and it says flowers by Irene stenciled on the side right fbi right right right. and then it cuts really fast i'm I'm sorry to my wife and simpsons fans if i'm not quite doing that (laughs) joke uh justice um so with my time with my magic time machine brandon joa and tim seeley i would just stage those three panels of the van ever so differently so that i could enjoy what slightly clever thing at least one side of it uh i was trying to think of a like a like a pun like Green shirt, uh, intern. <laughs> uh, green, green shirt. Oh, uh, G, uh, G, GRS, Green Shirt Rescue Service. <laughs> or or, or um, um, uh, Mirage Extraction. Uh, Mirage like you Extraction. Nev- like you never saw him there. <laughs> or like you never saw it there. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yo, Joe-ish? Yo, Joe Cola, not grape soda. It's Yo. Joe I'll go first because I'm gonna go low and, and and listeners deserve to end on a <laughs> on, on a higher note because you guys like these comics a little more than me uh, five like I said at the beginning I like the plot a lot everything that happens I like it I don't like any of the scripting and I have some uh, some things about the art that don't work for me and uh, no surprise, I didn't mention the color, but you know the color is too much. So uh, five. As I might, I might cut this out, but as an aside, in our last discussion, I think you gave issue two nine three a five. I have no, I have thought about this, and uh, I don't know how to reconcile that because I, maybe this is a four. Maybe these two devils do issues are a four, but I feel like four is for comics that are that like that don't function very well. And I, I think the reinstated, I gave a, like a two or a three. And I feel like on sort of every level, 
uh, reinstated didn't work for me. And I, I don't do half points. So, you know, maybe this is a 4.5 and the last IDW Real American issue was a was a five or something. Mm. The the chief um, scale sort of has anything below five is a little bit of a regrettable mm-hmm. read. So, so I sometimes think of that as a barometer. Well, but also I I didn't like these when I read them. But I very much enjoy talking about them. With you guys. No, 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 not no, no, not not because I'm like a grump. Like I like to analyze these, and I very much want you guys to talk me into a different mm-hmm. uh, point. You know, uh, to give me some perspectives. Like, no, Tim, but what about this? Yeah. And we enjoy it when you sort of lift up the trash can lid and poke your head out, and we can <laughs> you know share these viewpoints. Why don't you tell our listeners your higher numbers? <laughs> Get out of my yard. <laughs> uh, Jay, why, why don't you go next? I'm going to say 6.5. I liked it. Uh, I think I gave the last one 7, probably. This one has a little, just just some issues, but still I thought it was pretty good. It was pretty good overall, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, good. Uh, I think I'll I'll be the I'll be the sort of cheerleader here and go seven i enjoyed it um for all the reasons i said up up front there's there's nothing here that that you know seriously brings it down for me um normally i can point to a couple of things that i really dislike but but don't don't hear so um yeah i I enjoyed it uh sort of some good fun action some you know interesting setup and and as i say there's enough there that sort of look forward to to actually uh reading you know reading the next story and, and so, uh, one of the one of the kind of barometers that i use is is like at the end of that story am i excited enough that i then want to immediately move on to the next issue and i definitely was there to today when i was reading rereading these um i you know felt like oh i want to i want to sort of skip ahead to the next issue and find out what happens next uh, but i held i held myself back so that uh, i wasn't going to sort of start conflating you know yeah. the the next issue with what happened here which can be can be a bit of an issue when you do start reading ahead uh, that you forget what what is new versus what is what, happened what, what is in the issue versus yeah. what <laughs> what you've already read so cool um Good stuff. So uh, that's us done. Next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we'll continue our look at the Brandon Joe era of G.I. Joe with G.I. Joe issues 36 and 37, which is Union of the Snake part one and two. Uh, back on over on the regular show, we will continue covering ARA as it comes out. Uh, at the moment, we are looking at the high stakes art, which continues the drumbeat down to the milestone issue 300. Uh, where can people find you guys, Tim? I'm going to start with a new one because uh, our company just crossed a million views on YouTube. What? Um, uh, my my two partners and I uh, make videos. The company is Atomic Abe, like Abraham Lincoln. Atomic Abe. So that's AtomicAbe.com or our YouTube page is YouTube.com slash Productions. Uh, video essays and uh, short humorous content. Cool. Uh, but also, my comic book store is Hub Comics, and uh, my GI Joe writing is at arealamericanbook.com. Excellent. And what a milestone. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Jay, where can people find you? Breakroom Sketches on Facebook. Good. 
been quiet lately. You've, they've been working you too hard at your work. Yeah, yeah. Change of schedule mm. and uh, everything's getting shuffled around again. So we'll, we'll get them. And you just put your foot down and say, don't stop making me work. Can't you see I'm trying to draw some GIT? I tell them. I'm, I'm like, look, this is keeping me away from videos and comics <laughs> and everything else. But they, they, don't, listen. they don't listen to me. And uh, you can find out more about the show at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk has links to those places. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email. Uh, you can leave us voice messages now as well. Or you can be cool like Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher and Justin, who are getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. They are doing that by going to patreon.com slash talkingjoe and, uh, and backing us. So that is actually a stun. But remember, nobody beats Talking Joe, real American podcast, which is also, you know, reprinted in other countries as well, across the world, and uh, and has one third of this people, uh, this team in uh, in England. So you know, two thirds <laughs> American, one third uh, English. Uh, you know, for this episode, anyway. <laughs> What a, what a long outro. <laughs> I think that's my new catchphrase. Uh, I think I'll, I think I'll just write that one down. So I've pretty much fine tuned it. Later's. <laughs> I gotta go. Do uh, will you say the Patreon thing and early access and their names? Uh, I did do that. I just said it in a slightly different order. Oh, yep. sorry. Okay, I was I was definitely listening. <laughs>